It's a joy to be back with you this morning. I'm going to try to balance my laptop on this music stand. Um, well, it's great being back with you. I want to dive right in to uh, review a little bit what we talked about yesterday. What we talked about yesterday. Um, this morning's talk is really meant to be a part two to what we talked about yesterday morning. So I know not everyone was able to go to yesterday afternoon's lecture. So I'm going to pick up on some of the themes that we talked about yesterday morning um, as we start. So yesterday we looked at Martin Luther, and I found out after that he's right there in the chapel um, windows. So there he is. But we looked at Luther and Luther's persisting question, which was, how can sinful men and women be made right, or how can they approach a righteous and holy God? And I'm going to put this picture of Luther. There he is, lovely picture of Luther back up there on the screen. So Luther's initial answer to that question was trying to do things trying to make himself righteous before God, if you remember that. He tried to pile up righteousness, pile up merit for himself, inherently, his own merit, his own righteousness, so that one day he'd be good enough to come before God. And there's something that I want to explain to illustrate this a little bit. So in the Roman Catholic Church, salvation is a little bit like an American football game. I need to adjust this. Okay. An American football game, and I'm, I'm not an expert in football, so I'm going out on a limb here to use a football illustration. And here we go. I'm going to have a picture here. There we go. So, American football. And I found this image on Google. I chose it, and, uh, and then I didn't notice until later uh, the score. I'm from Pittsburgh, so I had to choose the Steelers, and then I realized this is a really bad picture to choose. Look at the score <laughs> at the bottom. Um, but anyway, in the Roman Catholic Church, um, salvation is a little bit like American football games. So when you're born as a little baby, you're baptized. And that's an initial gift of righteousness. That's like the kickoff in the American football game. Baptism provides you with an initial infusion of righteousness. So the baby gets the ball, is moving towards the goal line, which is to be in heaven. So after you receive the ball, you make forward progress. In football, you have three chances to make your 10 yards, at least so I'm told. Once you make your 10 yards, you can keep making 10 yards at a time. You can run the ball, you can pass the ball. In the Roman Catholic Church, you have different ways to advance the ball. You can do good works, you participate in the sacraments, like confirmation, communion, last rites, as you do those things, you slowly become more and more holy. As you progress to the goal line, which is touchdown, heaven. Now, you may ask, why was this the understanding of the church? And I mentioned this briefly yesterday afternoon as well, but it comes down to a matter of translation. So in Latin, the language of the church and theology during that time, the word to justify means to make righteous, to make righteous. So the theologians of the church understood that as you participated in the sacraments, you were slowly over a lifetime made righteous, made just in and of yourself. You gained righteousness. So justification or being right before God could only be a future hope, something that you hoped you would get to at some point. 
and it would only come through you earning merit through your life. At the end of your life, having participated in all the sacraments, you're coming to the end of the game. If you've been faithful, you know you're pretty close to making a touchdown. Well, the problem is you don't know where you are on the field of play at any one time. In football, we have all the markers. You know where you are. You know how many yards you need to go to make a touchdown, third and goal. But in the Roman Catholic system of salvation, you don't know whether you're very close to the goal or whether you're only halfway down. There's no guarantee also that you are holy enough, that you've done enough to earn to go to the next step. There's no guarantee that you're going to make a touchdown. You could get injured on the first play. You could make it so close only to lose the ball to the other team right before you score. You can wake up at the end of the game and find, in fact, you're nowhere near the goal. There was no absolute certainty or knowledge that you'd ever be able to come into God's presence. And that's the constant terror of the Roman Catholic system of salvation. And it was that that drove Luther to almost complete despair in his life. So even though, though Luther was a good Catholic, uh, he knew that there was a great problem in the universe, which is that in and of ourselves, we can't stand before God and be justified. We have no resources in ourselves by which we could say that we're worthy enough, that we are justly right before God. Sin deserves death. And we are utterly, utterly sinful. There's no amount of going to communion, going to confession, going to church, practicing penance that will make us right before God. And we saw this yesterday. It was a rather heavy talk that I gave yesterday because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. And we're left pretty much in a hopeless state. If we were to end at the end of Romans 2 or halfway through Romans 3, which is where we went yesterday, we would be left in a pretty hopeless state which we were, until we get to the rest of Romans 3. And this is where I want to focus this morning, the, the second half of Romans 3. I'm going to read these verses for you. I have them on the screen now. Let me read them for you. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what we see here is that the gift of righteousness is given apart from the law. Apart from the law. Luther described these verses as, quote, the chief point, the very central place of the letter to the Romans and of the whole Bible. Another theologian called this paragraph, or this very long paragraph, possibly the most single, the most important single paragraph ever written. It's from these verses that we can trace the famous slogans which accurately summarize the theology of the Reformation and the kernel and the heart of the Christian gospel. 
which you probably have memorized. Salvation is by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, therefore to the glory of God alone, and through scripture alone. But why are these verses so important? Why are they so important? Why, why is this, which I already moved the slide on, but why are these verses the most important paragraph ever written? Well, it's because they clearly lay out million-dollar concepts that explain the glorious gospel. These concepts were the ones that Luther finally understood as he studied the text, and which in turn revolutionized the world. So, in our remaining time this morning, I want to show how the gift of righteousness apart from the law is now made known. And I want to do that by explaining, just going through briefly, three of the concepts from these verses. There are more. If we had more time, we could explore more. But I, I really just want to focus on three this morning. And the first is justification. Justification. I mentioned this. That's up there. I mentioned this yesterday, both morning and afternoon. And we're going to just unpack this concept a little bit more in depth right now. So the concept justification, it's related to righteousness. In fact, in the Greek, our words for justification and righteous, righteousness, they come from the same word, actually. They're, they're interchangeable. So what's a good definition of justification? You've probably heard this before. You all go to covenant. Um, maybe it's very familiar to you. What's a good definition of justification? Well, um, I think a good one is a legal or forensic declaration of innocence. A legal or forensic declaration of innocence. A declaration from God that, that you have kept his law. His law has been kept that you're perfect, that you're holy, that you're righteous. Now, if you remember from yesterday, we talked about God's righteousness. And one of the things that I said was that God must always do what is right. What is in accordance with his own person. He's always true. He's always faithful to his word. His law is perfect. And it comes with a requirement that it be kept perfectly. Because God is perfect. So when we think about Luther's driving question, the question of how men and women could come before a, a righteous God, the answer is, there's only one way. Such an audience is only granted if the person is completely perfect. Completely righteous. That's the only way. And that righteousness has to be judged by the standard of God's law. Sin cannot be in God's presence. Only by perfection, only by innocence, only by the keeping of the entirety of the law can you gain an audience with a holy God. Jesus speaks of this himself in Matthew 5, 20. He said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the, who are the scribes and Pharisees? the most holy, righteous people in Israel. They were the ones who loved the law. They were the ones who wanted to keep the law perfectly. And Jesus says, unless you're, you're more perfect than they, you can't, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the standard. You, that's the standard that you have to meet. And it doesn't take two seconds for us to realize that no one can do this, right? No one can meet that standard. We talked about this yesterday as well. Adam messed everything up. Why, Adam? Adam messed everything up. He broke the law by sinning. And it's sometimes hard to even grasp the depth of the impact of what Adam did. But his act completely 
destroyed the chance of humanity's ever coming before God on our own. So it means now that even if you prayed every minute of every day, if you gave all that you ever earned to the church, if you served the church for every vacation time that you ever had, it still wouldn't be enough. It can't earn you an audience before a thrice holy God. If you evangelized every coworker, every student friend, it wouldn't be enough. Sin is just too big. God's standard is too high. Turn with me. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to grab mine. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians 3. I'm just going to read um, Galatians 3, verse 10. This summarizes what I'm talking about. Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. The standard of the book of the law, God's law, is that you have to do it all perfectly. And if not, you're cursed. That's the reality of the situation. So because of what Adam did, there now needs to be two things in order to make sinners able to appear before God. Two things, okay? Number one. I don't have this on a slide, so you can just take notes or listen. Number one, blood needs to be shed to cover our sin. Blood needs to be shed to cover our sin. And number two, the law needs to be kept. There must be righteousness added as well. So shedding blood only gets a sinner to the break-even point, to a neutral point. Bloodshed takes away the guilt of sin. But there then needs to be added righteousness on top of that before we can get into the presence of God. There needs to be perfect righteousness in order to be granted an audience. So what do you do? Well, in the Old Testament, God was gracious and provided the sacrificial system. That's why there was a sacrificial system set up. If you think through the Old Testament, all of those commands and laws about killing animals all the time, it wasn't senseless, it wasn't purposeless shedding of blood. There was a point to it. It was to show that blood must be shed to answer for what Adam did. And in the Old Testament, you have to go daily, 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 daily to the priests, to the tabernacle, and then to the temple to offer, have the priest offer in your behalf sacrifices. The reality, though, was that the blood of sheep and animals, it can't really take away sin. Symbolic of what needed to happen, which was that human blood needed to be shed to answer for what Adam did. Those things were shadows. The whole system was a shadow. It was temporary. It was limited. It was imperfect. And then what happens? Christ comes. What does he do? He keeps the law perfectly, and he sheds his blood. He does both. He undoes Adam's rebellion by keeping the law, And he undoes Adam's guilty, sinful act by shedding his blood. As Jesus perfectly kept the law, he was perfectly blameless, he qualifies to be the sacrifice to take away our sins. His righteousness exceeded that of the the scribes and the Pharisees. And what do we see in Romans 3, 22 and 24? The amazing thing about the gospel is that God gives us Christ's righteousness as a gift, as a gift. God gives us the righteousness of Christ freely. So how can God declare a sinner to be righteous? If he's a just God, he can't. 
right? God is always consistent. He's always impartial. His judgment is always perfect. He can't simply say that a sinner is righteous, because that's not just. You wouldn't want a judge to say, eh, your sin, whatever you did doesn't matter, go free, right? You want a judge to <laughs> exact the, the punishment for what the, the criminal did, and God is a just judge. So what he does do, what he can do, what he does do, is he credits Christ's perfection, Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect keeping of the law to us as his free and merciful gift. So in fact, he does declare a sinner to be righteous through the work of Christ. That's why in Romans 3.26, let me go back to this slide, 3.26, Paul calls God the just and the justifier of the ones who have faith. As I mentioned earlier, the word righteous and just are interchangeable. Okay, so in roughly you could translate this verse as God righteously righteousifies, which doesn't work in English, his people. God righteously makes his people righteous. He is righteous and he's the one that makes his people righteous by applying Christ's work to our account. Are you guys tr tracking with me so far? Okay, good. This is, this is really important, and maybe it seems like I'm belaboring the point, but this is so important for us to understand. So Christ's righteousness is the righteousness of God because Christ himself is God. It's a righteousness that's made over to us. We've come to possess it. We have become righteous because Christ is ours. We've become Christ's, and he's become ours. And that's the gospel. <laughs> Therein is revealed the righteousness of God, the righteousness of the Redeemer. Paul will say in a later chapter of Romans, chapter 5, that as by one man's disobedience, meaning Adam, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Christ, shall many be made righteous. And that's the grandeur of the gospel. We become the righteousness of God in Christ. The marvel is that everything that belongs to Christ becomes the possession of the person who is united to him. And yesterday afternoon we talked about union with Christ and what that actually means, what does that look like. We become Christ's. Christ lives in us through his spirit. Now, Christ's righteousness is not something that simply grounds the justifying act of God. It's something that demands the justifying action of God. Does that make sense? The righteousness of Christ can't meet with anything else than God's approbation. Meaning, God sees us as Christ's righteousness. We are righteous because of Christ. So what Wherever there's a sinner, however degraded, however sinful, however twisted in our own sin, if we're united to Christ, in Christ's righteousness, that sinner possesses a righteousness that God must justify. Because it's a righteousness that covers, to the fullest extent, the righteous wrath of God and the unrighteous contradiction of man. This righteousness stretches to the utmost confines of reality. That's why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
as Paul will say in Romans 1, 16 through 17. If there's going to be salvation, there must be righteousness. Righteousness to meet the contradiction that sin offers. And righteousness to meet the contradiction that sin offers will meet even God's own wrath. So, Luther's search was answered. How can a sinner appear before God? God has given his righteousness as a free, undeserved gift apart from the law. If you're not a Christian, this is very important. The basic instinct of a person who's not a Christian, although he or she believes God, maybe loves him, will save him at the end, and maybe she thinks that God loves her because of who she is, because of who he is and what he's done. Why will God accept you? The answer most likely for a lot of non-believers is, well, I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not, I'm not as bad as I could be. I could be a lot worse. I haven't murdered anyone. I'm, I'm a pretty good person, actually. And that's the road to condemnation. Standing on our own righteousness, that means I haven't begun to understand the gospel. And we as believers need to hear this as well. Because it's easy for us to slip into a similar notion that God accepts us because of what kind of Christian we are, because of our prayer life, because of our position in the church, because of our growth in holiness, and that's what we talked about yesterday. But that also is a denial of the gospel. The moment I think that I, as a Christian, God accepts me because of my level of righteousness, what does that sound like? It sounds like the church in Luther's day. <laughs> um, and that thought destroys the gospel. So we have to live in this great sense that God's salvation pardon is ours without the law. In the sense of without us earning it. Without us earning it. And it's when that truly sinks into our hearts and minds that we then have the energy to live a transformed life by the power of God's spirit. So God's favor, his grace, his goodness, his love is expressed in his unmerited imputing of Christ's righteousness to the believer. And it's in this that the believer trusts for his justification. Now, I want to keep going and talk about the next big concept. How does Christ's righteousness get credited to our account? What's the basis for it? And specifically, it's on the basis of Christ's work of propitiation. Let's see if that comes up. Yes, propitiation. That's the second big word that I want us to understand here from Paul. It says here in these, in these verses that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is a big word. Maybe you guys know it. What's a good definition of propitiation? Anyone know? I can just tell you. Propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, appeasing wrath. Appeasing wrath is a good um, two word. I like to do definitions in two words if possible. It's hard sometimes with theology, but two words. Appeasing wrath. Okay? Who's wrath? When, when Paul says that Christ has been put forward as a propitiation... Whose wrath is he appeasing? God's wrath. He's appeasing God's wrath. That's really important. What is, God's, what is God wrathful at? God's wrathful at sin. God must have wrath against sin. We talked about this yesterday. Because sin is a contradiction of God's character. Because it's a contradiction of God's law. Okay? If he didn't have wrath at sin, he wouldn't be a just God. He couldn't be a just God. 
So what happened when Adam sinned? And I keep going back to Adam because it does go back to Adam. What is sin? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is sin? Any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is not abstract. What I mean by this, every time we sin, every time we don't meet God's standard, it's a personal affront to God's character against his being. We show that we are the true children of Adam in that every time we sin, we show that we actually hate God in that moment. We hate his standard of holiness. We hate his law. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to follow his commands. We demonstrate that we're his enemies, just like Adam. We demonstrate that we deserve death from a perfectly just God whose law has been broken by us, his enemies. God told Adam, if you disobey me, you're going to die. And what did Adam do? He disobeyed God. What was his reward? Death. Now, gospel, the gospel is that in the face of this rebellion, God has made a way of salvation. In fact, immediately after Adam fell, God told him, even though Adam deserved instant death, God himself would provide a way for him to get out of that problem that Adam created. <laughs> and God promised he would send someone who would destroy sin and death and Satan already in Genesis 3.15. And guess what? That promise became clearer and clearer and clearer throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes, the one whom God promised. Jesus comes, he agrees to take on the wrath that our sin deserves. Someone had to. Someone has to. God can't just erase what Adam did. He can't simply turn away and pretend that sin doesn't exist. He wouldn't be a just, perfect, holy, righteous, merciful God if he did that. So what does he do? He devises a plan out of his love to affect our salvation, our salvation from our own wicked rebellion, and that's exactly what happened. Jesus came obedient to the call of his Father to lay down his life for us, for God's people. Jesus knew what he needed to do. He knew the path that lay ahead of him. He knew it meant that his own dear Father's wrath would have to be poured out upon him in place of us. And that's what propitiation is. It's a fancy word, but that's what it means. Think about God's prayer, or Jesus' prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that God would take this cup from him. Do you guys remember that, his prayer? Well, this cup is a common Old Testament term outlining the deep, fiery extent of God's righteous wrath. Jesus knew that this had to be poured out on him in his death. And it wasn't simply that Jesus didn't want to be separated from his father, although that was part of it. It wasn't just the physical suffering that he knew he had to face, although that was part of it. It was the idea that the weight of every sinful thought, word, deed ever committed from the beginning of time to the end of time would be placed on his shoulders on the cross. That's what caused Jesus' extreme agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now why? Why did God do such a preposterous thing that he himself would provide a way of salvation for his enemies? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... God made him sin who knew, knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Out of God's great love for us, even though we were his enemies, even though we hate him, he sent his son to pay the price for us. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, says that. We must never think that propitiation is Jesus' work to rescue us from a hateful, vengeful God. That is wrong, okay? <laughs> the basis of Christ's work is God the Father's love, sending his son to us. So I want you to think about, to revel in the depths of God's love for you if you're in Christ. 
That's propitiation. Okay, the last big idea that I want us to talk about this morning is faith. Faith. How is this gift of propitiation received? And it's by faith. Now, I love definitions. What's a good definition of faith? What's a good definition of faith? Faith in its essence is trust and commitment to another. It's essentially extrospective, not introspective. Meaning, it's the direct opposite of works. Faith is self-renouncing. Works are self-congratulatory. Faith looks to see what God does. Works have respect to what we do. So faith is receiving and resting. It's self-renouncing. It looks away from ourselves and finds it's all in Christ. Faith itself is a gift from God. So even in that, even by having faith, it's not something that we can boast in. And that's what Ephesians 2 says. When we talk about faith, justifying faith is not just general belief in God. Far less is it faith without well-defined and intelligible content, meaning true faith is faith directed to Christ. And when he's Christ, given the title Jesus Christ, that's a title that encompasses all that Jesus was, is, and will be. Jesus Christ is a rich term that means his office as Savior, Redeemer, Lord, descendant of David, Son of God, the one who was promised, the rescuer of his people. So faith is simply my empty hands reaching out to take hold of this Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus, the promised one, the anointed one, and resting in him, trusting in him, having true knowledge of him. And the amazing news is that this gift of faith is offered to the whole world. It's available to all who believe, not just the east, not at, but the west, not just the north, but the south. Originally, the message of salvation was confined to a, a pretty narrow people group, right, the Jews. Even then, it was available, but it was, it was pretty confined. Now in Christ, it's expanded to the whole world, the whole world. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be the most intelligent or the least. You may be the strongest or the weakest, the oldest or the youngest. Everyone who has faith in Christ, knowledgeable, resting faith, however weak that faith may be, is just as effectively united to Christ and to the righteousness of God as is the person who is strong in faith. That's the wonderful gift of the gospel. My time is almost up, but I, wanna, I want to conclude with the words of a hymn, a beautiful hymn, and I, and I will just read them. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life, I know that it is finished. And it finishes, the hymn finishes with saying, what can I boast in? Nothing but Christ, nothing but Christ. And that is the grandeur of the gospel and the glory of the Reformation. That's what the Reformation was about. I have the confidence that as I make Christ's righteousness my plea, I don't have simply something that God will justify, but I have something that God cannot but justify because it's the righteousness of his own redeemer his own son. 
So remember, even though your faith may be at its lowest point, even if it's at its weakest point, it's still a faith. And it's faith, if it looks to Christ, is the only plea against human sin on one hand and God's wrath on the other, then guess what? It's the righteousness that is the power of God unto salvation. We don't have to live in terror of not knowing how the football game of life will end. Praise God. We know that in Christ we are found, we are saved, we are loved, we are protected, we are lifted to the status of sons and daughters of God the Most High. And there's no stronger rock upon which we can stand. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, righteous God, merciful Savior, we come before you with joy again as we think about the gift of the gospel, the gift of righteousness apart from the law, apart from what we do. Because, Lord, we know that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before you, yet you have given us righteousness through your Son. And you have applied his work to us by your Spirit. Praise you, O Lord, for your gift. And I pray for everyone here now that we would just rejoice in the knowledge of this gospel. And thank you for your gift of saving grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.